Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Live from the BBC, The Naked Scientists. Well, a very good evening to you. Welcome to this week's edition of The Naked Scientist with me, Dr Chris Smith, and with Dr Kat Arney. Hello. This evening, mosquito meccas. When you go out in the evening on a, summer, on a summer's night, do you become a sort of involuntary component of a bug banquet? In other words, do mosquitoes home in on you like fl- flies around a proverbial? Why do they do that? Well, we have in the studio tonight the guy who has discovered some of the molecular reasons for that, John Pickett's from Rothamsted Research. Good evening, John. Good evening. John will be telling us later, essentially, how they've done this piece of research, which has enabled them to identify what the substances oozing out of your body are that attract mosquitoes to you so we might be able to come up with better mosquito baits and possibly better mosquito repellents. Also, moving on, plants and methane, how Venus flytraps work, and also genetically modified crops and why your cabbage goes soggy if you don't add some bicarb to it. Alison Smith is from Plant Sciences at the University of Cambridge. Good evening, Alison. Thanks for coming in. Hello. And also, why algae might be the the answer to vitamin B12 shortages in the future. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Alison's discovered why algae might actually be able to provide us with lots and lots of vitamin B12 because they've come up with their very own local pharmacy on their doorstep. Keep listening to find out what that's all about. And from the Wiggly Wigglers, you heard them last week, Richard Fishbourne's come in and he's going to be joined later by Heather Gorringe. They're from the Wiggly Wigglers and they're going to talk about how animals like worms can actually be used to modify your garden. Good evening, Richard. Hi, Chris. So if you have any questions for any of those and you'd like to join in on the programme, 08459 25 2000 the phone number, or you can email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. And coming up on the rest of the show, we bring you everything from the world of science. Yay! Uh, we're going to be having a chat with Nigel Franks, who's going to tell us about how ants learn. This is a staggering piece of research. You think about chimps learning, humans learning, this is ants. Uh, Chris is going to be talking about another ant story, about ant antibiotics. I suppose that's antibiotics, isn't it, really? And I'll be bringing you the exciting up-to-date news from the Stardust mission that was uh, sent to crash into a comet last year. And has it come back to Earth? Has it crashed? Is it here safely? We'll be finding out later. Chris. And of course there's also our competition Science Fact or Science Fiction. We have some wonderful stuff up for grabs for you tonight because Heather and Richard have kindly agreed to donate some things that could have your garden growing better than the Amazon rainforest. 60 plus pounds worth of goodies from Wiggly Wigglers. 08459 252000 is the phone number if you want to take part in a competition or you can email me chris at nakedscientist.com and coming up we'll be showing you how ants, because tonight's programme does have a very ant-driven theme, we'll be showing you how ants lay down chemical trails with an experiment in a real kitchen. We've got our guys in a kitchen in Northamptonshire with an ant's nest and they're going to show you how ants lay down chemical signals to find the jam and the honey and all that kind of thing. That's coming up all on the way on tonight's Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. 
So there were researchers at the Houston Space Centre waiting today with bated breath because today was the day that um, a capsule that's been out to hit a comet was uh, coming back down to Earth. Now, this is a, a $212 million mission. They built a little capsule called Stardust and it's been sent out into uh, far reaches of the solar system, a place called the Kuiper Belt, to go and find a comet called VILP-2. And uh, Stardust kind of swam through the comet and picked up loads of bits of dust, tiny particles of dust, uh, held it in a gel and then came back to Earth. And today was the day it was meant to touch down. Now, I don't know if anyone remembers in 2004, there was a Genesis mission that was sent to collect particles and it crashed very horrifically in the desert. But today, coming into Earth at a speed of 29,000 miles an hour, uh, Stardust made it safely down into the Utah desert and they've picked it up and uh, they're going to take it off to the Houston Space Centre to check out what particles are in there. But why is this important? Well, comets are a bit like that kind of clump of ice and frozen peas at the back of your freezer that can tell you what you first had in your freezer. They're the equivalent of that for the solar system. They've picked up and, and frozen in their core all the particles from about 4,500 million years ago when the solar system was new. So we can look at these particles, and it's like a little time capsule, and the scientists all over the world will be able to work out what the solar system was like and uh, where it may have came from. And I think we should brilliant. also point out, in fact, that it's going to be British scientists, in fact, scientists connected with the Open University, including Monica Grady, who's appeared on this programme, who will be doing some of that analysis of looking at these tiny particles caught in this thing. It's a bit like a tennis racket, actually. It's got this substance called aerogel in it, and this is the lightest known solid in the solar system, we believe. And this aerogel grabs these particles and is now closed in this capsule, as Kat said, and it's come home. But it's going to be sent to laboratories all over the world, including some in, in this area. Exactly, the Open University and Imperial College. Uh, it's a real coup for British scientists, I think, being able to work on this kind of thing. Very exciting. We'll find out what's in the back of the solar system's it's, freezer. It's really interesting, actually. The space science seems to be making huge numbers of steps forward at the moment. We've had the Japanese Hayabusa mission uh, around Christmas time. Now, we don't know if that's actually been successful or not. That was actually going to go and land on an asteroid, and the idea was that the, uh, the lander was going to get very close to this asteroid. It was going to fire some metal pins into the surface of the asteroid to liberate some particles and then grab those particles, put them into a collector and bring it back. It's had some engine trouble, so the Japanese scientists who made it are not really sure if it's going to actually have gathered anything, but it's coming back to Earth at the moment. And the next really big, really cool thing for space science from this part of this country, actually, is a project we have a hand in, which is the Rosetta mission. Do you know about that? Yeah, it's been swinging around the Earth, hasn't it, trying to get up some get up uh, speed, speed for to go off. Several billion mile journey. What they're trying to do is to, is to interact with a comet which is called Churyumov-Gerasimenko, and it's heading there for 2014. This is actually going to try and land on a comet. It's going to be the first example of a space probe landing on a comet. It's got legs and a lander, and it'll come down, touch down on the comet's surface, and then hopefully get a lot of information about what the surface of a comet looks like. It's such high-risk science, though. I mean, this one's touched down safely, but we know what happened to the Beagle, and we, uh, we know what happened to the Genesis mission. So this is good, and good luck for all the other space missions. Now, Kat mentioned this at the beginning, so I love this story. It's a fantastic discovery. Leafcutter ants. Who knows about leafcutter ants? They cut leaves. Yeah. Well, let me tell you what they do. You're right. They live in the tropics and they are well adapted. They have these big jaws that can slice through leaves a bit like scissors through paper. But these particular ants collect lumps of leaf and they bring the leaf back to their nest. And in the nest, they infect the uh, leaf with a fungus. And this particular fungus, they do this because the fungus can break down the leaf and, and release all the nutrients into the, into the particular fungal ball that the ants grow. So they're like nature's gardeners. And as the fungus eats the leaf, it turns it into more fungus and then the ants eat the fungus. All well and good. The problem is 
that these fungus, these ants' nests, occasionally get invaded by a second type of fungus, which is called Escavopsis, which is actually an invading parasite. It's a nasty fungus, and it kills the friendly fungus, and thereby also kills the ants. So the ants have this ingenious way to get rid of it. And Cameron Curry, who's at the University of Wisconsin, has published a paper in Science in the last week or so describing exactly how the ants do this, because they actually resort to their own homemade pharmacy, rather like Allison's algae making vitamin B12 on their doorstep, which we'll be hearing about shortly. These ants use bacteria. What they've done is to evolve tiny pouches on their body surface, all over the surface of their body, which are called crypts, and they're each fed by the equivalent of an ant sweat gland, which oozes material into these tiny pouches and makes them the ideal home for a species of bacterium, which is a, a kind of pseudonocardia, it's kind of filamentous bacterium. And these bugs pump out a cocktail of powerful antibiotics that the ants can then wander around dispensing around their nest whenever they need it, and it kills this Escavopsis fungus that can invade their nest. So the ants are quite literally their own walking pharmacy. And what's amazing about this is that if the fungus tries to evolve to become resistant to the ants' antibiotics, the bacteria the ants carry can easily evolve themselves to become even more potent and to kill even more of this fungus. So it's a really ingenious strategy, and now these guys have found out exactly how these ants do that. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, more things that have come out in the news today as well. Um, that uh, Chris is, Are you going to talk about methane and trees, Chris? Well, I was actually going to ask Alison about that, because, of course, there's a big story this week, isn't it, Alison, that um, for years people like you, plant scientists, have completely overlooked the fact that Trees, given that we think they're the, the best and the greenest thing we can do for the planet, actually are pumping out methane. Yeah, so that's a, that's a really interesting observation that's, that's been published um, this week. And uh, until recently, it was assumed that bacteria and animals like uh, cows and other ruminants were the culprits. And in fact, it turns out that it's our green friends that are doing it. More on that story just uh, coming up in just a few minutes. If you'd like to give us a call here on The Naked Scientist on BBC Local Radio right around the east of England, Dr Chris, Dr Cat, that's us, 08459 25 2000, or you can email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. Now, first off, we're going to take you back to school now, but this is no normal academy. The teachers in this school are ants, because for the first time, scientists at the University of Bristol, a guy called Nigel Franks and his, and his colleague Tom Richardson, have discovered the first example of an animal other than a human teaching another animal and these ants are showing each other how to do things and these guys have caught it all on camera what we've been able to show for the first time is a really good example of teaching in animals in fact teaching really hasn't been shown in any non-human animal ever before and the remarkable thing is that we haven't been able to show it in a dolphin or in a primate what we've seen is teaching occurring in ants and what we've done is to look at a particular aspect of ant behavior, which is known as tandem running, where one ant leads another, and we've shown that all aspects of teaching actually occur within this behavior. And this is one ant showing another ant how to go somewhere to find food or something? That's exactly it. But what's really interesting about it is that it's a very, very slow process. And what we see is that the follower stops periodically and to all intents and purposes we're sure that it's looking round for landmarks to learn and only when it's learned a landmark does it signal to the leader that the lesson can continue how do they actually tell each other right okay you're doing this right come this way how is that information passed between the teacher and the pupil yeah it's a very interesting thing and what is happens is an absolutely gorgeous bit of behavior the the follower taps on the hind legs and the abdomen 
of the leader. And only when the leader is very frequently tapped by the antennae of the follower does a leader proceed. And what you can do, actually, is take the follower away and use a hair to tap on the leader. And if you tap very frequently, she'll keep running. In other words, it's a signal from the pupil that uh, says, okay, I've learned this part of the path, now we can proceed. Now, in medicine, we have this kind of motto, which is see one, do one, teach one, and you might apply that to an operation, for example. Hopefully not. But um, <laughs> does, does the same thing happen in, in ants? I believe it does, because what happens is that the follower, once it's got to the food and learnt where it is, will actually return to the nest, and very frequently it will begin to teach somebody else. And so even though tandem running is rather slow and ponderous, the beauty of it is that that the pupil can in turn become a teacher and so the sort of information can flow through the society. That was Nigel Franks from the Biological Sciences School at the University of Bristol. Absolutely fascinating. Ants, they've got more intelligence than I'd previously credited them with. I thought you were going to say more intelligence than you for a second, but no. Maybe they have. You're listening to the Naked Scientists being rude to each other across the BBC in the eastern counties. If you have any uh, messages for us, if you want to play our quiz, Science Fact, Science Fiction, and if you have any questions for our studio guests about plants, about ants, about pests, about composting, worms, anything get calling in 08459 25 2000 you can also email us that's chris at nakedscientist.com and we've had an email in this week from jack allenson who's in texas i'm going to attempt to read this in the appropriate accent and he says howdy ducks (laughs) howdy ducks he says maybe i won't um I wanted to write and tell you how much I enjoy your show. Um, I have a 200-mile commute one way from my home to work, and the podcast really makes the time fly. My God. Uh, Your topics are always relevant. However, the speed at which y'all talk makes a Texas boy concentrate to keep up. My kids think kitchen experiments are the best. I love them too, as they make me appear smart. Uh, He says, keep up the good work. Any chance of a US-Texas version of the show? So maybe we should speak a bit more slowly. Who knows? He says, this is the best programme to come out of England since Scrap Heap Challenge. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not actually sure whether that's a compliment or a veiled kind of criticism. I think we'll take it as a compliment (laughs) and we'll talk really fast for the rest of the show, just to annoy him. Howdy. Okay, well, thanks very much for that. You are, of course, listening to The Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Kat. We're here with you until seven. If you have any science questions, and I mean any science questions about anything, we'll slot them into the programme where we can, 08459 25 2000, or you can email me, chris at nakedscientist.com. Uh, I did promise you earlier that we would teach you how you can dig up an ant's nest in your garden and demonstrate that ants are laying down chemical pathways to show each other the way to do things. And we're going to do that right now because Derek, our kitchen science uh, team, uh, is with Elva Robinson from the University of Sheffield and they are with Harry and Joe in their kitchen in Abington and Northamptonshire doing just this. So, good evening Derek, how's it going there? Hello there, yes, and welcome to Abington in Northampton for some more kitchen science and I must say I'm really excited this week about the experiment because it's going to involve ants and playing tricks on ants which is actually filling me with glee. Anyway, without further ado, uh, let's talk to firstly a special guest who's come down from Sheffield to run this experiment today. So, please could you tell us who you are and what you do. I'm Elva Robinson and I do research on ants at Sheffield University. Okay then, and so what experiment are we going to be doing with these ants today? Well, we're going to give them the ants some food and then we're going to see how they can tell the other ants where the food is. That's brilliant. Okay, thank you very much. So we'll be doing that in just a second. But firstly, we've also got some wonderful helpers here. Uh, So guys, could you tell me your names and ages, please? I'm Harry and I'm eight. I'm Joe and I'm eight. Okay, and what, what do you guys think about insects and creepy crawlies and so on? Because we've got some ants in your kitchen right now. Do you like insects, Joe? Yeah. 
Well, OK, and yourself, Harry? I do like them. OK, then. Well, I think you'll like them a lot more after this experiment. I hope so, anyway. OK, well, let me firstly, then, describe the setup that we have here in the kitchen in Abington. Um, in front of me, then, there is a large grey plastic tray. It's about four inches deep, and inside it there's just a huge number of ants, and they're just crawling all over the base of the tray. Now, anyway, the business end of this experiment is a small piece of plastic which is a few inches long, which is shaped like a tuning fork. And this has been suspended above the base of the tray, a bit like a diving board, really. But because it's shaped like a tuning fork, it's actually rather like a diving board which splits into two branches, left and right. Now then, this is the important part of the whole setup because the ants are able to crawl onto this piece of perspex, and indeed they're doing so at the moment, but as they walk down it, they are presented with a choice. They can either go left or they can go right. Now, what we did a little bit earlier on, just because this experiment can take a little while to develop, is we put a little tube containing sugar dissolved in water at the end of one of the branches. Now, Elva, firstly, um, this sugar dissolved in water, is that, is that the ants' food, essentially? Yes, that's what the ants eat to give them energy. Right, OK then. And so a little while ago, we put this little feeding tube onto the right-hand branch of the forked pathway. And what we wanted to know was whether the ants would find it, whether they would go down the right-hand branch, not the left-hand one, and actually find the food. Now, initially, a few did, and Elva, I suppose they did appear to kind of stumble across it slightly, but were these first ants actually finding it by smell or what? Well, I don't think they're smelling it, but they are exploring all the time, so as soon as some food appears, they're quite likely to find it. OK, thank you. Well, anyway, since then, we've seen some rather interesting stuff happening. So, um, Harry and Joe, why don't you tell us about it? Joe, firstly, what have we been seeing? They're all trying to get to the food. OK, but Harry, I mean, what, would you say most of them are going down the right lane or not? Are, are they finding the food well, do you think? Most of them are finding the food, and most of them now are going back. Yes, so, um, Joe, these ones that are going back, what do you think they're actually doing? Some ants are trying to tell the other ants where the food is. Yes, well, that's it, really. We're seeing some of the ants actually heading back to the nest, and what we've got now is really a nice trail of ants leading from the nest all the way to the right-hand branch of this fork and to the food. And, importantly, we're not really seeing many on the left-hand branch either, actually, so, so it's this nice, strong trail to the food and nowhere else. But, Elva, I suppose the question is, what are they doing, these ants that are going back? How are they telling the others where to go? So the first ants that found the food put down lots of their chemicals called pheromones and the other ants have been following these trails and also putting down more pheromones themselves. So we've got a good strong trail going to the food now. Well, we've seen what the ants are capable of so far, but we've actually got another thing we can do in this experiment now. OK, so Elva, what can we do now? Well, if we move the food source over now to the other side of the fork, we can see whether the ants are going to carry on following their trail to the wrong side or whether they're going to move with the food. Harry and Joe, then, what do you think is going to happen when we do this? Harry, firstly, what's going to happen when we move the food over to the other fork, which they're not really going down anymore? Well, I think first they're going to go down the lane that they think it is for, because they've seen loads of ants going down there so far. But then they'll start putting scents down the, the left lane, and then they'll go down the left lane and stop going down the right lane. Excellent. Well, all we need to do now, then, is to switch the feeding tube over from the right-hand branch of our tuning fork-shaped platform over to the left-hand branch. And uh, so, one of you, um, Harry, would you care to do that for us? Excellent. Good stuff. OK, well, that was easy enough. So anyway, then, will the ants be able to find the food or will they keep going down the right-hand branch? This is the question we are asking here in the kitchen and it will be answered later on in the show. So please do join us in a little while here in Abington with uh, Harry, Joe, Elva and myself to find out whether we have tricked these ants. Thank you very much, Derek. 
Derek, who's with Elva Robinson from Sheffield University, who is interested in how ants lay down chemical pathways using a chemical called pheromones to guide other ants to find sources of food and also block off pathways which stop ants going on a wild goose chase or should that be a wild ant chase? I'm not really sure. Anyway, it's customary on The Naked Scientist that we include a podcast pick each week. So if you're doing something interesting scientifically on uh, out there somewhere around the world and you'd like to put your podcast here on The Naked Scientist for about a minute and a half, just send it to us. Record something, something interesting and scientific and send it to me, chris at nakedscientist.com. About a minute and a half is probably the best length. This week we're going to launch into a series of four pieces which have been kindly put together by David Lemberg who is um, a presenter from a, a, a programme over in the States and what he's actually going to talk about is something called nanotechnology and nanotechnology means the very, very small. So in other words, how you can actually use tiny, tiny things to do very, very ingenious things within the body usually. And so David, who's, who's from scienceandsociety.net, so if you want to go and have a look at his website, scienceandsociety.net, has put together this series of four things and he's going to explore the nano world with us uh, starting this week. So here's the first one. Cancer treatment is notoriously difficult. You want to kill the cancer cells and there are many high potency medications to do that, but they all have severe side effects. Ideally, medicines would be targeted to the cancer cells only, eliminating the toxic side effects. We call this local administration of therapeutic medicine. Nanotechnology is developing many methods of targeted drug delivery, and these will be available within the next few years. In one example, the drug and the delivery mechanism are combined in a two-stage molecule. One part of the molecule is designed to attach to a receptor on the cancer cell, like a key fitting into a lock. Once the molecule is attached, the drug is released into the cancer cell, killing it. Let's remember that applications at the nanoscale are not new. Biology has been doing it for billions of years. The human body consists of a series of nanosystems, bone surfaces, cell surfaces, nuclei, and so on. What's new is our ability to use nanotechnology to model biological systems. By doing this, we'll be able to build new types of proteins, regenerate damaged organs, and even develop implants that will enhance biological function. We're already well on the way to offering personalized, predictive, and preventive medicine. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll talk about nanotechnology, energy, and the environment. It's David Lemberg, from the executive producer of Science and Society, and his website, scienceandsociety.net, over in the States, if you want to check him out. And, uh, and as he says, next week, we'll be following up on the next part of his nanoscale technology series. It's The Naked Scientist, Dr. Chris and Dr. Cat. We're here with you right across the eastern counties on BBC Local Radio until 7. If you'd like to send in any questions, email's a really good way to do that. Chris at nakedscientist.com is the email address. Or you can phone us up, 08459 25 2000. Laying the facts bare, The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists, Dr Chris and Dr Cat, and joined now by Eddie, who's in Essex. Good evening, Eddie. Hello, Dr Chris. Thank you for coming on the programme. What would You're you like to know about? The, well, what I'd like to know is, and it's intrigued me, that someone can have an, an accident, an accident rather, crash into a fence or something like that with a large post and that can pierce the body, then the fire brigade can cut it free take them to hospital, we have surgery, and they survive with no problems. And yet a little bullet, which is, goodness knows how many times smaller, can pierce the body and kill you. Yeah, and, and I guess you're thinking, why the hell is that? That's right. Yeah, it's, it's actually all down to the, the momentum of the thing concerned. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's interesting is Kat was talking earlier about how Cometville 2 uh, interacted with the Stardust probe and it was able to capture some dust from that comet. The comet was actually travelling along thousands and thousands of miles an hour faster than the probe was. And the tiny particles that it was throwing off were capable of destroying that probe. 
And this is all down to something called momentum. So the momentum of something is the mass, how much something weighs, times how fast it's going. That's how hard something slams into you. So it doesn't actually matter how heavy something is or how big something is because the faster it hits you, the harder it hits you. So if you drive into a fence at 60 miles an hour, it, the, the, thing, the slamming, bashing into you effect that you feel is the weight of your body times the speed you're going and the weight of the post hitting you. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, if you're hit by a bullet, although the bullet weighs a lot less than the mass of the fence post, it's going a hell of a lot faster because the average bullet leading up, leaving a pistol is going around about 700 miles an hour, a hell of a lot faster than you in your racing car. E- even Nigel Mansell would have a job competing with that. And as a result, the momentum of the bullet is much, much higher. And the reason bullets cause such a problem is that although they go in and make a very small entry wound, the shock wave of the bullet hitting your tissues literally rips you apart internally. And that's why if you turn someone over who's been shot in the front, it doesn't look too bad from the front, but when you look around the back, often there's a very, very big exit wound because as the bullet goes through, it compresses all the tissues it passes through and pulls them to pieces and literally just squadges you from the front to the back. It's like being hit with a fence post, but much, much harder. So it's all down to the momentum, Eddie. Well, that's great. That's very interesting there. Okie dokie. Have a go at the quiz. Do you want? I'll Hmm? try. All right, then. The carotid is a vein in the neck. Is that science fact or science fiction? It's fact. No, the carotid's actually an artery in your neck. Uh, the vein in your neck you're probably thinking of is called the jugular. How, here's a good joke for you. How do you kill a circus? I don't know. Go for the jugular. <sighs> I've, got a, I've got a worse one than that, actually. Um, I, I had this email from a guy called Peter, and he said, um, I had a lot of wine um, left over after Christmas, and the dog knocked over one of the bottles and drunk it, and, uh, and the dog was really, really really drunk and he came down the next day and said to the dog who looked really sorry for itself and really hung over he said how are you feeling and the dog sort of said rough <laughs> sorry next uh, question my joke's better um, the, mo- the mo scale is an old farmer's measurement for the height at which a crop should be cut is that science fact or science fiction eddie I think he's gone. <laughs> he's, that's my joke. He can't take the joke. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Eddie. OK, right, well, we should carry on in that case. And incidentally, this is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Kat. And if you'd like to ask us any questions on anything scientific, 08459 25 2000, or you can, you can uh, drop me an email, chris at nakedscientist.com. Now, we have in the studio tonight uh, Professor John Pickett from Rothamsted Research. And John has done, amongst other things, he works on a hell of a lot of stuff, but one of the things he's worked on is why it is that some people are victims to mosquitoes. So John, tell us about your research. How did you actually get into this, and, and what have you found? Well, uh, there are a lot of stories about people being uh, differently attractive to uh, mosquitoes and other nuisance flies that bite them. Uh, and, of course, the, uh, the, the perceived wisdom is that uh, the people who aren't attacked lack some attractant material. In fact, what we found is quite the opposite. It's that uh, the people who aren't attacked actually produce some extra chemistries, some extra materials come out of their body and actually put off the mosquitoes and other flies. The way we found this uh, was to look, first of all, at the emanations that come out of people's skin. So we chose a number of volunteers and looked at the way the insects would uh, fly towards their arms in a device called a wind tunnel. Presumably you had to pay people quite a lot to take part in this research. No, they volunteered, in fact. No, they volunteered, and uh, and, uh, we didn't actually allow them to be attacked by the the insects. We stopped them actually arriving at the arms, so we could count them as they were approaching these people's arms. What we did then, though, was to take the the volatile chemicals, the chemicals that are coming out of the skin, by putting the volunteers again, uh, very willing volunteers, into a kind of bag, which we kept a positive pressure into, so that we could draw 
air out of it and uh, take out of that air the chemicals that they were putting into the air. And by that means, we could show that the same people that were not attacked by the mosquitoes or not attractive to the mosquitoes also produced a range of chemicals that we can now get hold of uh, that were having the same effect. How did you actually identify what the chemicals were? Well, that's even more clever. In fact, we use uh, a lot of chemical analysis for this kind of work, but we can also use the insect itself. So we can put small microelectrodes into the antennae of the mosquitoes. Because mosquitoes don't have noses, they use They antennae, don't. They don't. have antennae, beautifully uh, structured devices, which function the same as our noses, though they're very much more accurate in terms of picking up the right compounds that they're interested in. And we could find out that way, which it was that uh, the, the chemicals uh, in this complicated mixture that we can separate chemically, which ones were actually uh, repelling the mosquitoes. So you attach, a, essentially, you attach a wire onto one of the nerve fibres coming from, an an, from the antennae and record from that when you present different chemicals to the mosquito and see what the response is electrically. Yes, we can either fibers. record from individual uh, neurons or nerve cells or we can record from the whole antenna. In fact, we used to, uh, a preparation that used the whole antenna in this work. And, and if a mosquito is actually uh, put off by a smell... Does it, does it still respond in the positive? Will you still see a positive signal from the antenna, or does it, does it respond in the negative and it switches off? No, so no, no. The, uh, the, the antenna is just a recording device. It's the central nervous system in the animal that decides whether it's going to approach the, uh, the source of, or what it perceives as being the source of the material, or whether it goes away. And so what we've done is we've looked at the chemicals that are produced by those people that are attractive, and then we've tried to find the extra ones that the mosquito responds to from people who are not attractive. And those ones, then, we've tried out uh, in, uh, in this wind tunnel device to see if they will put mosquitoes off from going to the, the attractive people's hands. And that works. And so with you, our, can, you can confer unattractiveness on individuals and, by decorating and, them. And in the field. So with our colleagues at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, where they have the Scottish biting midge, which is not a mosquito, it's, <laughs> no. a, it's a midge in a, different, a nuisance. in a different family, but the same <laughs> insect order, but very, very vicious, of course. There we can use some of these chemicals to reduce almost to nothing uh, the normal attacks that you get from the Scottish biting midge. Why do some people have them, but not all of us? Because you'd have thought this would be a huge advantage. If you look at Africa and malaria, for example, 200 million cases of malaria a year, 3 million deaths from malaria every year. If you have a gene that means you make components in your sweat that put mosquitoes off, you'd think that was so advantageous everyone would have it. Yes, that's right. And, of course, the close relationship between some of these biting flies, like the mosquitoes and people, have meant that the mosquitoes are always keeping up with how we try to evolve a way away from them. But the kind of chemistry we're seeing seems to relate to stress. And, of course, mosquitoes have to put in quite an investment to get a blood meal from somebody. They have to inject in... Uh, uh, chemicals that dilate the blood vessels and stop the blood uh, coagulating. And that's quite a, a, an expense for the mosquito. So they're very keen not to go to somebody who is stressed in various ways. And we think that's the reason for it, though we are not certain that uh, that is true at the moment. But certainly we've got the chemicals. There's an email here from Linda Edwards who uh, says she's very interested in the fact that we're talking about why people are mosquitoes' banquets on some occasions because she says she's one of those people. In the summer, I can have some rather good bites on me. Even last week I had a bite from somewhere from something. Is there any way we can change our diet to prevent ourselves from being eaten in this way? I look forward to the rest of your programme. Thanks, Linda. And she is in Norwich. Well, uh, it's a very good question from Linda. I think that... Um 
obviously it's not just attraction that can give you a lot of bites, it's also whether you show a good response when the mosquito or the fly gets there, and it's also whether you notice or not, whether you have an immune response to the, to the bite. But in terms of attraction, yes, you can take certain things in your diet, and if you do have very strong plant-smelling uh, chemicals in your diet, and these come through the skin, as you can do by consuming garlic and some drinks like pastis, then these can put off some flies. Obviously, they're carnivorous. They don't want to come to somebody who's smelling very strongly of plants. But it's not really very reliable, although quite a lot of the mosquito repellents that we use commercially are based on that kind of effect. They're really not that good, and the mosquitoes can break through because they can see the attractant chemicals through this sort of malaise of, of other things that we might try to mask ourselves with. And that's why it's been very important to look at individual human beings to find out how it is that some of those, some of us, are actually repellent to mosquitoes and other flies. There's a quick call, um, Patricia's in Northampton. She said she was in Texas in October, John, and she said she was bitten by something, but she had been eating a lot of bananas and was told not to, and so she stopped eating lots of bananas, and then she said things stopped biting her. Does well, that sound reasonable? I, I, I'd need a little bit more detail, I think, okay. before I could really confirm that. But can, certainly can there add, are links with certain types of food. Can I add one more question here? This has come from Australia. It's Matt uh, Lubinus, who is in Australia, in Melbourne, actually. And he says, um, for the last week, there have been flies at work and they're becoming more annoying than ever. By this, I mean they continually buzz around your face even after you physically hit at them, and they still seem to come back. And I was wondering if there's any kind of smell or attractant that the human emits that attracts these flies, or does it have something just to do with moisture? Because, in other words, he's asking, is it, do flies also respond in the same way as your mosquitoes do? Well, many, many flies, which includes the mosquitoes and the Scottish biting midge, do use carbon dioxide, they use heat, and they use various other chemicals that are quite commonly produced. But they will also use specific compounds to see human beings. For example, the malaria mosquito can find a human being, uh, a cow herd, for example, in the middle of a very large herd of cows. Even though it's using carbon dioxide and heat, it does use human-specific chemicals to find that human subject. And it will be the same for the flies that are annoying the, the friend uh, in, in Melbourne, because certainly these insects are able to perceive what kind of potential hosts they've got, even if it's not blood they're after, just the mucus around our eyes or mouths. Oh, I, I'm definitely a mosquito's friend. I get bitten all the time. Um, I'm very interested. Uh, is it going to be commercially available, these sort of pheromone anti-mosquito Well, it's causing a great interest at the moment. We've been able to use one of the main commercial uh, repellents, DEET, diethyltoluamide, in our comparative work in Scotland. And we can certainly beat that, in the, certainly in the short term, very much so. Oh. Um, so there's a lot of interest. What we're doing at the moment is we're writing up the work and, and patenting it. And that will, of course, uh, facilitate its commercial development. Brilliant. Quick question for you as well. Uh, we have an email here from Stephen Rigney, and he says he loves the show... He has a question that's been bugging him haha, since he was young. Uh, where do flies go at night time? Well, flies uh, are normally flying uh, during daytime. That's why they've got such very, very good eyesight, of course, and can, and can yep. dodge your, your attempts to swat them. Uh, they, they roost in, in nooks and crannies and so on, ready to get some kind of, uh, of meal off you. In fact, the carrot fly, which is a pest of carrots, of course, actually roosts in hedgerows. And we, in fact, devised the means of, 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 of passing a disease to them in the hedgerows. But unfortunately, unlike the mosquito repellents, that's a very long way from commercial development. 
Thanks very much, John. John Pickett from Hampstead Research. He's here in the studio. If you want to ask any other questions, 08459 25 2000, or you can email chris at nakedscientist.com. This is The Naked Scientist. We're here with you till 7, live on BBC Local Radio, right around the eastern counties. And uh, we're talking also with the Wiggly Wigglers shortly. We'll be talking to Richard and Heather, and also Professor Alison Smith's coming from Plant Sciences in Cambridge University. Good evening, Alison. Tell evening. us about your algae. <laughs> okay, well, my algae, as you put it, are uh, constitute uh, the largest group of organisms that fix carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. In other words, they, grab carbon dioxide and put it in one place, turn it into other things. That's right. They take the carbon dioxide and turn it into sugars, and they use the energy of the sun to do that, photosynthesis. And algae are responsible for about 50% of the world's carbon dioxide fixation. So they're very, very important in terms of global carbon um, cycles. And what we've um, found, or what we've been in interested in, is the fact that algae don't, aren't completely able to live on their own. And this is because they require a source of vitamins. So in that respect, they're like animals. And the way we found this was because if your um, uh, animals need to have vitamins in their food... And there's one type of vitamin called vitamin B12, which plants uh, that live on the land don't make. So if you're a very strict vegetarian, then you won't get it from your food unless you don't wash your vegetables very well. So what do algae do? So what do algae do? They, th these algae appear to get it from... They take it up from, the, uh, from their environment and they can't get it from seawater because the levels of vitamin B12 in the seawater are just too low to support their growth. And instead, what they appear to do is to get it from bacteria. So in that respect, they're like those little ants you were talking about at the beginning of the programme. So these algae have bacterial clusters hanging around with them that are feeding them some vitamin B12? Well, it appears to be like that. It's hard to show that it happening in the seas, but what you can do is in the laboratory, you can grow the algae in a flask and you can then see that the around the outside of the algae there's a sort of... Um, gluey mucilage it's called mm. and the bacteria stick to that through so, lots of... So in return for giving the algae some B12, do the bacteria get some protection then? Is yeah, that, is that the it's not so much protection um, as, as they actually get some of the sugars that the algae make, Is that that's what we think So, so it's the... a sort of symbiotic relationship the, exactly. that one scratches the other one's back Exactly. Now what do you like on uh, Venus flytraps uh, Alison? <laughs> Got a question here from Jennifer who's in Boston in the US and she says Dear Chris, uh, thank you for an excellent show, I enjoy it so much I wish I could clone you all for the American airwaves <laughs> Thanks very much Jennifer um, Here's my question though, how do Venus flytraps sense their prey without nerve cells and how do they contract without muscles? Well, that's a very good question. And in fact, um, some work, work has been done on that quite recently. And it turns out that the Venus flytrap has got two sort of uh, disc-shaped um, leaves, which then when the fly or other insect touches it, they sort of invert themselves. So they turn inside out the other way in a very, very fast movement. And they discover that by doing time-lapse photography. Um, yeah, I actually um, had a little look, and it's a Professor Mahadavan who's in Harvard, who actually worked here in Cambridge for a little oh. while. And they were painting spots of ultraviolet ink onto the leaves of the Venus flytrap so that they could shine uh, ultraviolet light on it so these spots would glow up and then take photographs, as you say, at 400 times a second and then trigger a Venus flytrap and watch what happens. And, it's, and the analogy that, that has been used, and I think it's a very good one, is if you cut a tennis ball in half, you know how you can pop it from 
sort of the mm. normal half moon shape and you can pop it inside out almost and it'll sit there quite happily but then all you have to do is touch it and it pings back the other way and people have suggested the same sort of thing is going on in the Venus flytrap although how exactly it orchestrates that we don't know mm. it does have little hairs though doesn't it and the, the, yes. the that the fly walks into yes and and those those hairs are very similar to the ones for example on nettles which can detect when you brush past them uh, much to your annoyance, Much of to your chagrin when they then sting <laughs> you. There's a quick one here from Kerry Wybrow, and she sent this to us a little while ago, Alison, but I kept it with you in mind. Um, I'm not sure how your cooking is, but um, she says, why does the addition of bicarbonate of soda to the cooking of my cabbage make it much softer and the colour stay much brighter? Thanks, Kerry. What do you think? Ah, well, the the uh, reason that cabbage goes sort of nasty brown colour when you cook it for too long is because uh, it changes the chemical nature of the green stuff in the leaves, that's the chlorophyll. And if you put bicarb in there, it changes the, the conditions, it makes it more alkaline. And then the magnesium atom, which is a thing that pops out of the chlorophyll, stays in there. Now, just before, because we've got to move on in just a second, Alison, but one quick question. We did say we'd get you to comment on this methane story. Frank Kepler from uh, the Max Planck Institute in Heidelberg said that they were just messing around in the lab and they found that trees make huge amounts of methane. They don't know why they do it, and even the leaves that they drop make bits and pieces of methane. But why should, why should they do that, and what do you think the implications are? What, what will this be doing to plant scientists around the world now, for example? Well, I think it's uh, something which is completely unexpected, as you say, and I think it's, it really does require quite a considerable effort on, pe- on uh, the side of plant scientists to work out why plants are doing this what benefit it is and also the chemistry of it which is very um, you know as a very interesting observation um, in fact plants do give out all sorts of volatiles and in fact uh, i think john here knows quite a lot about one um, group of things yeah methane of course is potentially very useful but it's not valuable enough to sort of capture from plants uh, we're working on an idea at the moment to try and capture isoprene which is a really very valuable chemical it's the uh, the sort of material that you make rubber natural rubber and uh, and artificial rubber out of essentially and if we could capture that from plants we'd stop it becoming a greenhouse gas problem and we would get something really very useful for industry. So, Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Cat, we're here with you till seven and we're going to talk very shortly to the Wiggly Wigglers all about how you can dig the dirt on worms in your garden and that kind of thing. 08459 25 2000 is our phone number or chris at nakedscientist.com if you want to send us an email. Fancy listening to the Naked Scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work or even at work? Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. We're now, now, don't be put off by the name. They've come in this evening. It's the Wiggly Wigglers, Heather and Richard. Good evening to you both. Hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. So tell us, what actually is the Wiggly Wigglers, Heather? Um, we're a natural gardening company, but we started our business um, worm composting, so supplying kits to individuals to um, compost their waste with worms, turning their kitchen waste into lovely worm casts. I think you actually had one, didn't you, in Australia? Yeah, in, in Australia I had a, a wormery on my on my. Uh, balcony because we lived in a flat and we had a roof garden and we found this thing could consume kitchen waste at the rate of well faster than we could actually put the kitchen waste in there but you could put eggshells uh, cabbage leaves any old vegetable matter in there and the worms would turn it into this wonderful juice yeah not only juice but they make a, a cast as well but they're not too fussy on what you provide them with they like dog hair by the way and bananas i know you mentioned bananas earlier but you've structured your company around the idea of trying to get people to use science to try and get get their garden to perform a bit better how long have you been going 
We've been going for 16 years now. Um, and when we started, it was just myself. And now there's 14 of us. 13 women and one man. Gosh, I've got a quick question for you. My, my dad's really into composting and he loves his worms as well. We've got a big worm bin. Um, he likes to pee on the compost heap. Why? Because he heard it was good. Why, why is that? Is this something he does in public, cats? Or, um... <laughs> uh, no. Yeah. no, I think just when the mood takes him. I think After yeah, 15 the, pints of lager. Conventional <laughs> composting is probably quite a good idea because, you know, the, the urea involved. But uh, if, you're, if you're looking to compost with worms, it's probably worth avoiding because generally worms don't like acidic conditions. So it's probably worth avoiding. I mean, worms have, a, have a, um, a calciferous gland, certainly the big lobworms you'll find, the red worms. Um, so obviously for, for excreting and, and producing cal- calcium, so, which is to why you tend not to find worms in places where you find rhododendrons, for instance. So you encourage people to add a dose of worms to their garden to improve the quality of the soil. But does it actually work? It does. Worms are the most amazing improvers of, of soil. Uh, obviously you've got when when we set up a worm kit what you're doing is you're kind of harnessing a natural phenomenon really so you're you're introducing organic material and the worms are consuming that organic material the cast that they produce is something like um that the nitrogen that comes from worm cast is five times more uh five times greater uh the 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 um, phosphorus is seven times greater and there are something like a thousand times more beneficial bacteria in the casts than the original soil. So if you've just moved into a house on a housing estate that's just been built and you've got that wonderful clay that they give you for your garden, <laughs> yeah. um, if you sling some of these worms on there, does it make a difference to the soil? Absolutely. I mean, it's going to make... The, uh, worms are obviously going to improve the soil by increasing the aeration. They have... They have there, are, there are amazing things with worms in that the, when they... The drillers fields, which are the worm holes, they have a, a kind of... They can... When worm mucus, there are certain bacteria in there that they leave in the, in the drillers fields which can help to... Uh, oxygen to, to diffuse into the soil, for instance, as well as affecting... Increasing the soil permeability. And interestingly enough, there's a, a paradox... It can also uh, increase the, um, the, the, the moisture retention properties of soil, especially around plant roots. I've got a really quick question. I told my friends that the show was about worms, and they said, where do worms go when they die? Do they get eaten by other worms? <laughs> Uh, probably, <laughs> they don't <laughs> indirectly. At Interestingly least, enough, yeah, they, there are well, there are species. I mean, we've got we've got, we've got a situation now in this country where there's uh, there are, there are certainly two species of flatworms I can think of: New Zealand Australian flatworms, which which um, exclusively feed on on our indigenous earthworms. Um, generally, if a worm dies. Then they'll they'll probably be eaten by um, nematode worms. They'll become worm food. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) Return to the earth. It's Dr. Chris and Dr. Cat as the Naked Scientist with you until seven this evening, talking to the Wiggly Wigglers, Richard Fishbourne and Heather Gorringe, and also Alison Smith from Cambridge University and John Pickett from Athamsted Research. And we're discussing the science of gardening, the science of insects, and that kind of thing this evening. Oh eight four five nine twenty five two thousand is our. phone number and you can email me chris at nakedscientist.com if you'd like to send us any kind of feedback on our program because what you think of it is very important to us if you're enjoying tonight's show tell us why if there's something that's winding you up tell us tell us about it and we'll try and put it right for you but first of all let's join tim upson who is the superintendent of cambridge university's botanic gardens to find out actually what he thinks about the science of composting and what kind of contributions it can make to making your garden an even better place composting is a perfectly natural process It's the process by which any organic matter, any plant matter, decays. And basically, um, composting gardens, for example, create a very useful substance, which usually we use to enrich our soil. 
What actually does the composting process? Presumably it's something in the microbiological world. That's correct. It's things like bacteria, the primary uh, decomposers, and then very often um, as the compost matures, other organisms such as fungi and then particularly uh, worms, wood lice and even slugs in very mature heaps actually creep in and they can really refine it. And, and if you get those organisms coming and you, you produce this really fine, friable substance, it's actually a nice substance to handle and to use in the garden. And of course, uh, plants love it. It promotes plant growth. It promotes very um, healthy soil all necessarily, you know, whether you're growing ornamental plants or vegetables um, in your garden. What are the best things to sling on a compost heap and are there any definite no-nos then? Yes, I suppose it's a little bit like uh, cooking to a degree. What you want to do to create an ideal mixture is to include uh, what we call greens. So these are things like uh, lawn clippings, annual weeds, anything which is green and breaks down easily and this needs to be mixed with what we call the browns and these would be things like twiggy branches all the way through to um, household products like toilet roll holders Um, that adds bulk it keeps the compost open it means the air can penetrate and all of these bacteria and other organisms working on it it means that they remain active because they have a good oxygen supply. Do the worms actually make much of a contribution? Because presumably if you do get worms flocking to your compost heap, they mix things up and down. Do they do anything else? Um, Yes, worms are the gardener's best friend in in many ways. And of course, they naturally occur in the soil. And if you've got your compost bin or such like directly on the soil, they will penetrate into it. What about adding worms though, Tim? If you you actually buy in worms, as, as some people sell worms, what about adding them to compost heaps? Is that useful? Yeah, yes, you can do that. And in fact, there are now systems available, quite nice little neat systems, which take advantage of the fact that uh, worms eat organic matter. It passes through their gut and comes out the other end, basically is worm poo. And that produces something called worm compost. It's actually very rich and uh, usually it's diluted down uh, mixing with uh, a normal potting compost you might buy from the garden centre or some other compost coming from uh, a normal compost heap um, just to dilute it a little bit um, if you use it on its own it, it's too rich but it's a wonderful substance and if you use it in the right way it can really promote growth um, in, in, in the botanic garden for example we have a display showing a whole range of different composting options um, some require a lot of space, but I always feel that uh, one of these little worm bins, even if you live in a flat that maybe has a balcony, you can put it out there and you can keep it going with kitchen waste, potato peelings, carrots, rather than putting it into the usual landfill stream. That's Dr Tim Upson, who is the superintendent of Cambridge University's Botanic Gardens, talking about why chucking stuff on the compost heap is a brilliant thing to do. Stripping down science. OK, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist, BBC in the East of England, and we've just got a few minutes left on the show. Uh, we've had an email in from Negin Amiri in London. I was talking about the Stardust mission at the beginning of the show, and he says he wants to know if the analysis of the Stardust um, comet 
dust material could tell us about the origins of the universe and the theory of the Big Bang? And uh, the answer is probably no, because the Big Bang was 14.9 billion years ago, and scientists mainly study that by looking at radio waves and the sort of radiation that's left over, whereas um, the Stardust comet mission is going to tell us about the formation of the solar system, so that's about 4,500 million years ago. So probably not all the way back. Um, but we're here, we've been talking about plants, composting, insects, all that kind of thing. And I want to ask Heather, um, so if I was to set up a wormery, what sort of thing should I do? Is it hard to look after worms? Do they need special love? Uh, they're not too fussy, actually, Kat, but um, we sell all different sorts of wormeries and you can compost with just worms on their own. But the easiest way to do it is to actually buy a ready-made thing because that way you can get the compost out so much easier. Um, but they're, not, and, they're also not huge, are they, Heather? They're, they're not mass- People often think of these things as big, in-the-way sort of messy things, and actually they're pretty compact. You've brought one in here, it doesn't smell. Uh, it's quite compact, it's quite clean and tidy. Um, it's, a, it's ideal, really, isn't it? Yeah, you've put up with it very well, and it's uh, just it next door. <laughs> um, no, it's about, they're, they're about 50 centimetres wide and about 73 centimetres tall, so, you know, they can fit into just about anything. Are they very costly space. to set up? How much does it cost to set yourself up with a wormery? You can start with worms and bedding from about 13 quid, or you can have the whole thing for around 89. So it's that full range of, of um, prices. Is there anything you shouldn't put into your worms? I mean, will... Yeah, anything, cyanide. Will it... Cyanide doesn't go down to <laughs> We've already heard you shouldn't pee on your worms, but if, is there anything that will affect their, their acidity or something like that? What about if you've got worms? Does that... We did worms. That was a few shows ago, Chris. Keep up. Um, what, what shouldn't I feed worms? There, um, you can go a little bit steady with, with citrus peel. Um, onions and citrus peel, a little bit steady. If you're going to add that, then you need to add extra um, limey material, so things like eggshells or cultivated seaweed, that sort of thing. Um, but other than that, they're, they're pretty cool. They like things like cardboard. Um, they like cooked waste and um, veggie waste. Um, potato peelings take a little bit longer to break down, but it's really one of those things where you use the natural resource um, to its best ability. So if it goes really cold... They slow down a bit, so what? Are they going to last forever? Well, they'll, they'll breed in your wormery, hopefully, and so the population's sort of stable, is it? Or do they, do they need replacing from time to time? Bad news if they need replacing. I did have a customer once who insisted on feeding his son porridge every day, and his son didn't like porridge, so he put it in every single day, and that did cause a bit of a film over the top. Constipation. The well, I, think, constipation. I think they were completely bored. <laughs> 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 So much as a worm can become. Born. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, it was easily fixed. Uh, a little bit of cardboard, a bit of variation in their diet, and they will stick anything. That's the Wiggly Wigglers. Heather, what's your website if people want to know a bit more about um, how to set up a worm? Surprisingly enough, Chris, it's Wiggly Wigglers. .co.uk. So if you want to set yourself up with a wormery, there you go, wigglywigglers.com or .co.uk to go and find out how you can do uh, what Richard and Heather have been talking about this evening. Right, we have to head back to Harry and Joe's kitchen in Abington in Northamptonshire where we've been trying to demonstrate how ants can lay down chemical pathways to find where the jam is. Derek. Hi there, once again, we are still in Abington in Northampton, so welcome back to the kitchen. And uh, with me is, of course, um, Harry and Joe, who've been paying attention to what the ants are doing on the experiment we've built. And, of course, Elva Robinson, who's here as well, who set up the experiment, who's going to also be giving us some explanations about all of that in a moment. So what we did in the earlier part of the show was we we had a a setup which is rather like a tuning fork. And uh, at one end of the fork we had some food, at the other end we didn't. We switched the food over after the ants had found the food, and we wanted to see what would happen so so then guys um harry and joe what's been happening firstly harry what have we seen 
being tricked and they were getting confused. But then some of them started going down the other way to go and see if it was the other one, and they found out that it was. Excellent. Okay then. And Joe, I mean, when we look at、um, the start of the fork before the ant has to make a decision, if we see one of the ants kind of walking up towards where the food is, what, what do they do? They went to、um, decide where it was first, and then they found it wasn't there. So they started to look over the sides, but they still couldn't find it. Okay. Well, that's that's it. So really, then, what we've seen is the ants. Being tricked, really, by us,、uh, we we coax them into thinking that the food was at one end of the fork, which which was of course true for a while. But then, when Harry switched it over,、uh, the ants were still going up to that end, and it took them a while to kind of work out where to go. And I think, really, at the moment, some of the ants are still going up the wrong side, and they're probably getting rather confused. So, Elva, can ants be confused? And other such questions. What is going on here? Well, yes, we have managed to confuse the ants quite well here. And、um, to start with, we had the food on one side, and they'd put. Lots of go here signal down, leading to the food, and on the other side they'd put down the no entry stop signal. Okay, and so let's just let's just clear that up then. I mean, the ants have two signals, do they? Yes, that's right. They have one that they put down that tells the other ants where the food is, and they have another one they put down to tell them where there isn't any food. So they'd managed to tell almost all the ants to go towards the food, and we didn't have many ants on the other side of the branch. But then when we moved the food across. They carried on going down where the food used to be because they'd put down a lot of this "go here" signal down there. Okay, and so what actually are the signals, and how do the ants detect them? These signals are chemicals called pheromones, and they smell them with their antennae. So this tells them which way to go. But we've confused them because we've put the food on the side where they put the no entry signal, the stop signal. So now some of the ants are going and finding the food, and some of them are still going the wrong way. And so I suppose it just takes a while, doesn't it, for the good smell to overwhelm the bad smell that was already laid down. All right then. So guys, Harry and Joe, thank you very much for your help with this experiment. What did you think of the experiment then, Joe? Firstly, what did you think? I think it was very fun. Excellent. And have you learnt loads about ants, then, Harry? What did you think? I thought it was very exciting. I've learnt loads of new things about ants. Excellent. We hope you're going to go and tell all your schoolmates about that as well, and you'll be the ant experts in、uh, Abington in Northampton, I think, for some time to come. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, and thank you, Elva, as well, for coming down from Sheffield. And、uh, well, that's all from here in Abington. So、uh, do come and join us next time when there'll be some more kitchen science. Until then, goodbye from Northampton. Thanks very much, Derek, who's out there doing our kitchen science this week with Elva Robinson from the University of Sheffield, laying down chemical pathways for ants. Next week, we'll be joining Herbert Huppert in the Naked Scientist's own laboratory, where James F. Stathew is going to be doing some explosive experiments on volcanoes. And that's because next week's show is going to be all about the science of volcanology and earthquakes. We'll have Janet Sumner from the Open University and Dr. Tiziana Rosetto from University College London, and we'll be covering everything to do with ground tremors, tsunamis, things that blow up. Everything like that. So, if you have any questions about that, you can start sending them to me now if you want, Chris at nakedscientist.com, or you can log on to our website if you've got un,、uh, unanswered questions left from tonight,、uh, nakedscientist.com. I'd want to say a very quick thank you to everyone who came in this evening: Heather and Richard from Wiggly Wigglers, Alison Smith and John、Pitt、from Cambridge University, and John Pickett from Rothamsted Research. Thank you so much for making tonight's show. Absolutely fabulous! It's been great at also to have your company from home. Please have a wonderful evening. What's left of it, and we'll see you at the same time next week. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, the Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com.